0: Good morning. Um, It's good to be here. Uh, Hope you're doing well. If you're visiting, if this is your first time here with us or second or third, you can still be considered visiting. Um, Grateful to have you here with us to worship. Uh, If you were here with us last week, um, our sister Judy shared uh, from the, as a representative for the pastoral search committee, And she shared that it would be helpful for us as a church if we would sit and think through, work through the book of Titus. Um, And that's Paul's letter to Titus. Um, So for the next few weeks, we're gonna be doing just that. As a church, we're going to be looking through Titus and asking the Spirit, teach us, instruct us through this text. If you've been with us for a little longer, uh, from the beginning of this year, 2023, we started this year off by preaching from 1 Timothy. Um, So as we start the book of Titus, if you were here with us during 1 Timothy, you might feel a little bit of deja vu, just a bit. Um, These two letters are from the same author, from from Paul. Um, He's writing to Titus and he's writing to Timothy on very similar subjects, um, especially that of leadership and guarding against false teachers, um, but there's some differences as well. Um, so it's kind of like a, a, a different perspective on similar subjects from, but also like, Timothy and Titus, if you look at the two books, the two letters, they were different kinds of leaders. Um, Titus was way more, he seems way more confident. Uh, Timothy comes off as a little, Cautious, anxious, maybe? Um, Paul is usually like, oh, don't let people look down on you because you're young, you know, you got it. (laughs) And Titus is a bit more like, all right, just just do the things. (laughs) Um, So there were very different types of people. um, And the places where Timothy and Titus were working, uh, Ephesus and Crete, they were different. Uh, They were dealing with different problems. Ephesus is kind of like a city center, almost like New York City. And Crete is kind of um, more rural. Um, we'll get more into it uh, as we as we go on. So just like today, for us living in the city, we don't expect living in New York City to deal with the same kinds of things like like a small town in Iowa. Um, if you're from Iowa, it's okay. <laughs> You know, um, it's just like we don't expect, like a small town, to deal with the same kinds of concerns that a city like New York is dealing with. So it's important as we read Titus that we look at it in context. What is Paul writing about? What was the situation that was going on? And we'll get into this as we, as we look to the text. Uh, but before we read the text, would you pray with me as we ask the Spirit to teach us this morning? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this morning? Um, Bring us humbly before your holy scriptures to be formed, to be shaped. Help us to come with open hearts to learn rather than looking for bits and pieces to affirm what we might be already comfortable with. This morning, I also ask that you would be with me as I Work to bring this text that was written for a certain time in a certain place to mind. Help me to bring this text into our present moment. It's our desire to more clearly see Jesus as we are called into the same household together as our Heavenly Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our good and faithful older brother. Amen. So would you follow along with me as I read from Titus 1? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The word of the Lord. Um, This is all of chapter one. Um, We're going to be looking mostly at five to the end, five through 16. Um, Just as a side interest, these greetings in the beginning... It's actually one long sentence, so it makes it really tricky if you're reading it in English and you're like, what are you saying, Paul? It's, it's hard. Just, I'm just going to move on from there, but just saying these, these greetings, they're, it's one giant sentence. Um, but we'll be looking at 5 through 16. Um, in our ESV translation, if you have it in your Bibles, in your apps, um, the editors of the ESV have added the heading, Qualifications for Elders. And my guess is that this is the reason, or at least a big part of the reason, we're looking at this passage as our pastoral search committee. Sometimes I might say PSC, but I'll try to keep it pastoral search committee. Um, This is one of the reasons why I'm imagining that the pastoral search committee uh, wants us to look at this passage while it begins its work. But what I hope to do today, as we look through this first chapter of Titus, is to see how Paul's instruction to Titus, it's a little bit actually more far-reaching than what we might imagine a pastoral search committee to be doing. Um, It might actually apply to the whole church, all of us. Each and every one of us, as we desire maturity, not just for ourselves, but for our church, for our church to grow. Um, But to do this well, I think we need a reset of sorts as we come to this passage, because if you grew up in the church, I know not all of us did, um, but if you grew up in the church, uh, chances are that you read this passage with a lot of assumptions as to what Paul is saying. Um, So today's sermon, it won't have a typical three points as I guess we usually do because we're Presbyterian, Um, it won't have a usual three points to take home. Uh, What I hope to do today as we're starting this series together, I hope to lay down some groundwork um, to help us understand this passage in the upcoming weeks. And in the end, at the very end, as as we go through this passage, I hope to bring this text in Crete with Titus to our time and place here. So stick with me. Um, the beginning of this passage, the beginning of this message, is going to almost sound like a classroom lecture. Um, but bear with me. I, I'm I'm doing this. I'm going through the background information uh, for two reasons, um, at least for two reasons. One that as we read scripture, we would better understand the world of the scriptures. It's not. It's it's not New York City. It's not 20th century, but um, 21st. <laughs> sorry. Um, Uh, I want us to understand the world of the scriptures, and two, I hope that as I'm going through this, that we will be able to learn some principles for interpretation uh, for your own readings. So as you read and you understand the world of the scriptures, some strategies, some things that you can look at, um, I hope to share some of those with you. Um, So stick with me in the beginning. It's a little bit lecturish, but... I'll bring it home. Just stay with me. Um, So Paul, in the very beginning, um, after the greeting, in verse 5, Paul is instructing Titus to appoint leaders. Um, He's appointing elders, right? That's what the text says. But what does Paul mean when he says, we're to, Titus, go appoint, just go select some elders. What is an elder here? And why does Paul instruct Titus to do this? What was the purpose? Um, Before we start assuming all these things, we have to remember that at this point in history, Crete is a super young church. It's pretty early in Paul's missionary journeys. We have to remember that at this point in church history, the office of the elder did not really exist yet, at least not in the same way that we might understand it in our more developed church governance So whenever we come to a text, we need to recognize that we approach a text, all of the Bible really, from a historical and cultural distance. You know, we must first try to understand the text as best as we can with whatever resources we can find in its particular time and place before we try to import our own ideas into it. This is just a fundamental rule of interpretation. We come to the text humbly to accept what it's trying to tell us on its own terms. Sometimes we come to a text wanting it to affirm what we already know or think we know or what we believe without any curiosity. There's something interesting going on here. Sometimes we so desperately want a text to be correct that we no longer come with questions. But I'm encouraging us as a church, whenever we come to a text, to come before it with curiosity, with humility, Um, Even as a a professional, um, as a pastor, I'm still surprised. I'm I'm surprised when I come to the scriptures and my curiosity is a little tickled. um, When I learn something new. I mean, it'll be terrible one day, even as a pastor, that I come to the scriptures and be like, I already know everything. That's a terrible posture to have when we come before the scriptures. And when I come before you in a message like this, I don't know if it always transfers, but I try to bring some of my own like nerdy excitement as I come to the text. Um, so let's take a look at what's going on in Crete. Um, the church in Crete was a little rough around the edges. Um, let's say it nicely. Um, we could already tell from the second half if you were following along as I was reading, uh, from the second half of today's text, the people of Crete, um, even amongst their own people, didn't have a very good reputation. They were not city folk, so they were not like cultured. There weren't weren't as many things going on in Crete. Crete was more like a country folk, working class part of the empire. And Titus was charged with organizing the church there to finish the work that Paul left undone to make the church respectable um, in a region where corruption was the norm. The church in Crete was young, really young. Um, Unlike Timothy, when we were reading Timothy together, Titus, if you look at the text here, Titus didn't have the option to select elders or leaders from people who were not recent converts. Everyone there was young in the faith. So Titus, when he was tasked by Paul to appoint elders in Crete, I don't think we should think about it in the same way that he was appointing pastors or preachers these were all young people in the faith based on the language here um, the closest comparison to this text that you have in antiquity um, is that the elders that titus is to appoint were more like household managers they were house- they kept the house in order if you look at the responsibilities the elders here And I'll call them elder managers just to distinguish. The elders here kept the house in order. They kept track of finances. Um, They made the house welcoming. They, you know, fluffed up the pillows. They they made sure that it was comfortable, that visitors could come through. Um, They made the house presentable, respectable. In Crete, what was happening in Crete that Paul was trying to address was that the church was facing an image problem. The church was facing an image problem. The church in Crete was starting to look like the rest of Crete. It was looking more and more like society's corruption. And the witness of the church as the embodiment of this gospel message, it was at risk. They were dealing with an image problem. The, the witness of the church as the embodiment of the gospel was at risk. And these elder managers that Titus was charged to appoint, well, to, in order to change that image, they required a certain character. Um, in our passage today, we're meant to contrast the positive description of these elder managers in verses 5 through 9 with the negative descriptions in 10 through 16 everyone in Crete had assumed that leaders would be corrupt. You know, it's almost like today, it's not exactly the same, but today we might say, like, oh, yeah, all lawyers are, I mean, I know there's a few, like, it's, it, um, or, oh, the politicians are, you know, like, it's, we just assume it. If we find out a politician is corrupt, we're like, well, of course. <laughs> um, if you're, you know, I'm just saying. Um, so the contrast here, Paul is trying to instruct Timothy Put good ones up front. We read the character descriptions in verses five through nine not as a checklist similar to how we went through First Timothy, but it's a contrast. It's painting a picture. It's a contrast to what people in Crete would have expected. So I'll go through a few of them and then we'll we'll take them as a whole. Um, Above reproach, you'll notice that it's, it's, it's written twice it's just a general statement of good character. They had to be respectable. Um, so above reproach, we, we find that as like a, almost like a, a blanket umbrella statement over these two um, sections in that five through nine. Um, but husband of one wife. Um, so I'm just gonna take a few of them just to contrast with us today. Husband of one wife. Now, um, I pause here because in the American church, um, this phrase gets a lot of heat. Um, I don't know where, where you are, where you, what kind of churches you come from, but husband of one wife, it gets a lot of heat because at least in, in the church in, in the U.S., some have taken that this phrase, husband of one wife, as we have translated in the ESV, it means that these elder managers had to be married, that they had to be married. Or they have taken this to mean that these elder managers had to be men. And if you have your Bible app, and you have multiple translations, if you flip between them, if you read the various English translations that we have of this phrase, you'll notice that there is a spread of interpretations um, of how to render this phrase that we have. And whenever you're reading the Bible, you don't need to know Greek, you just need to know how to switch between different translations to notice certain things. Um, Whenever there is a disagreement, it's likely, as you're reading the Bible, it's very likely that the Greek behind it is a little tricky. Um, Some might like to appeal to a text and say, oh, the plain reading of the text says this, but if it it renders differently in different translations, there's a good chance that the Greek is not plain. You're not going to get a plain reading. The literal translation of this this phrase, um, husband of one wife, it literally says, a one woman man. You need, the the leader, the elder manager should be a one woman man. And scholars from all kinds of traditions, whether you lean more conservative or lean more liberal, um, across the whole thing, when when they read this phrase, one woman man, They all agree that the distinguishing emphasis here is not about being married, nor is it about being a man. Um, To pull out those individual words from the one-woman-man phrase and try to build a doctrine on it, it would just be poor interpretation. Um, The emphasis in one-woman-man is on the one. The one. A one-woman-man What Paul was trying to say in this passage is that Paul was ruling out infidelity. He was ruling out the unfaithful. He was ruling out sexual promiscuity from leadership in a culture where it was generally okay. People would have expected it. It was generally accepted that you might be married. There weren't, uh, polygamy wasn't that common, but friday night outings were common maybe i'll put it that way Um, paul was ruling out side pieces Um, marriage here was not the the emphasis it was assumed for any adult because in this culture marriages there was no dating you were assigned marriages were arranged and this passage is addressed as a one woman man because well, in patriarchal Rome, which is what's going on in this, the, the culture here, uh, women generally did not have this problem. Saying a one-man woman would be saying like a one-nosed person. It, it would mean nothing. But when Paul says a one-woman man, he's poking at a particular accepted practice in Rome. And he's saying it's not, you can't have outside things going on. You're supposed to be faithful to your spouse, your partner at home. Faithfulness was the emphasis here. Um, Not gender, not marital status. And the reason why Paul pushes this, it was to present a beautiful household. Because if there was infidelity, the house is not happy. Um, Paul was trying to present a beautiful household in contrast to Cretan culture, Cretan society um, that was not always beautiful, (laughs) was not always at peace. And and Paul continues to the children in that same verse. Um, I should also add that being a parent is also not a requirement here. Um, But he's trying to paint a household. And the question is, why would Paul, in addition to talking about faithfulness in marriage, why would Paul include the children's faith and character as a requirement for this elder manager? If you look at the text, why would he do this? Would this imply, as we might you know, logically deduce, would this imply that if the children of a leader no, no longer followed Jesus, that that leader would be disqualified? If the children of a leader no longer followed Jesus or were drunkards, or insubordinate as the text would say if if that were true would that leader be disqualified because if that were the case if that was what this text is trying to tell us some of our most respected faith leaders in the church not just our church but just like the church they would have to leave their posts the reason that Paul both here in Titus and in First Timothy, uses all this household language is because at this point in church history, in the early church, churches met in homes. They met in the elders' home, in the managers' home. Churches met in homes. People were hearing about Jesus primarily in the homes of their friends, in the homes of their neighbors, and when they went into the house, If you've ever been into a house where you you feel marital strife, uh, if you haven't, sometimes you can just feel it without a word being said. It might have been your own house growing up. People were hearing and judging the goodness of the gospel message through the character of the households that hosted the early church. If the house was a mess, relationally a mess, if the children did not feel safe with their own parents in their own house, it would show. Husbands who were unfaithful invited bitterness and strife to their families, not just to their partners, but to their children. There would be resentment. And the implicit question in this text as Paul is writing to Titus and giving these lists um, of qualities, of character qualities, the implicit question for everyone who is visiting a church And this is early on. The the church is very new. The implicit question is, would the church, would this house that I'm seeing the church through, would the church perpetuate the upset of families producing marital strife and rebellious children? Would the church perpetuate the upset of families producing marital strife and rebellious children? Or, as I'm in this house, or would the household of God display the transformative power of the gospel through the members that were here? The actual household that was there as well as the people that were part of the church. Would the church perpetuate the upset of families or would the household of God show that something was different? It was the witness of character in these families. That was the reason why we have all these domestic requirements for these elder managers it was so that the goodness of the gospel would not be defiled by the character of poor households and poor leaders uh, I won't go through every single one we don't have that much time but would love to if you want to sit down um, verses 7 through through 9 um, continued the description of this house manager um, in our ESV translation you see that it says a steward uh, manager, steward same thing um, 7 through 9 is meant to contrast with the corrupt leaders spreading lies for selfish gain in 10 through 16. We won't go into detail of each one. Again, it's not a checklist, but but I think it's helpful for us as we look at Titus 1 to zoom out a bit and just look at the picture that Paul is painting. Look at this portrait that Paul is painting through a compare and contrast. If you have the text before you, you can go back and forth, but Here, Paul is painting a person who is upright, who is wise, who is gentle, who is generous, someone who is hospitable, self-controlled, dependable, uh, grounded in truth, not swept away by conspiracy theories. As we look at this picture that Paul is painting, do we not want to be In this person's circle, this the person that Paul is painting. Do we not want to be in their care? When we experience them, do we not feel seen and known, cared for? Um, As I was, uh, I had finished this sermon a little earlier this week, but throughout this week, I had a conversation where someone, um, uh, two sisters, were sharing with me about their experience um, at a at a church where the people that came to care for them, to bring them around town, to put a meal before them, they were so thoughtful in every detail. They were so considerate, gracious, loving, caring, that as I was listening to them recount their experience, I was like, that looks like Jesus. And it was, I I mean, I was just listening, but it was was beautiful to hear because there was this church that they were sharing about from their experience that communicated to them the gospel. These people that I was imagining as they were describing, are, are these not the people that we want to befriend? We want to know them. When we see them care for people, we want to imitate their character. For those of us that have children, this portrait that Paul is painting, would we not want our children to see them as models of goodness and wholeness of people that are right with themselves? This character portrait stirs our hearts. It stirs the hearts of, of the world because such a leader looks like Jesus. We might not always put that together as a phrase, but it, it looks like Jesus. Paul was instructing Titus to appoint leaders with such character that the goodness of the gospel would be obvious. He he tells him to appoint these leaders to address the deficiencies of the false leaders that were already making their way into the church. Put the right ones forward, Paul is saying to Titus. This is the witness of character in the church. It is a church where the leaders look like Jesus, Jesus. In the way that they talk to one another, in the way that they care for you, in the way that they listen. For those of us here, um, as we are King's Cross in this particular season, is this not what we desire for our own church? That as we're in this season, we wouldn't put a stumbling block for people to experience the gospel. Because sometimes when I think about the church, not just our church, but just the church in the West, in, in, in America? Are we not saddened that these days sometimes saying to people, sharing with people that you're a follower of Jesus often, me- often invites a measure of disdain? That Christians these days, or Christian leaders, are often perceived as pursuing selfish gain or exuding self-righteous moral superiority? Are we not Saddened that that Christian leaders, at least those that are in the limelight, are known more for scandals and cover ups than they are known for demonstrating good character, grace, demonstrating love. Do we not all long for leaders of good character? But I'll also extend this to us. Um, And here I'll bring this to our particular time. My question, as we long for leaders of good character, do we long to also communicate the goodness of the gospel? Do we long to be Christians of good character? Do we long to look like Jesus? It's about the witness of character to one another and to those that are visiting, coming through. Do we long to look like Jesus, that people who come to our church would more clearly see the gospel at work through our lives. Um, A few weeks ago, I had sat down with the pastoral search committee to talk about our church, um, about what kind of pastor we desire. And as we were reflecting together, um, as we were reflecting together, not just on the pastor we desire, we also realized we had to reflect on what kind of church we are and what kind of church we want to be. I know some of you had, have done a similar exercise in your community groups, um, but we had to reflect not just on what kind of leader we desire, but also for us, what kind of church are we? Because they're connected. Our situation isn't the same as that in Crete, but we do face the same question about ourselves. Kings Cross Church, we are searching for a lead pastor, yes, But we are also searching for a church. We're searching for ourselves. Who are we? That was a question that I think a few CGs worked through this week. uh, Or if you were eating this week, next week. Um, We're searching for ourselves. Who are we? Why is it that in our history, in our church history, why is it that we've already cycled through multiple lead pastors? Is there something about the way we see ourselves as we see our role in the community? Is there something about the way we understand leadership? Is there something about our expectations of people who serve? Is there something about our expectations of who should serve? And I ask these questions, I don't have clear answers for these, but I'm asking these questions to help us to reflect as we are searching for ourselves, do we, as we are in our particular predicament, do we bear some of the weight of our current situation? And I know these are uncomfortable conversations to have. These are uncomfortable questions to even say out loud. Um, Because most of the time, when things are tough, it's much easier to place the blame or the burden singularly on a particular pastor or a leader and not realize that we're interconnected. The kind of people we are attracts a certain kind of pastor. The kind of members we are reflects on our, I'm sure CG leaders know that if the group is different, they behave different. Like we're, we're in this dynamic all the time. It's much easier to place the blame on one person. Right now, we're recognizing how, we're recognizing painfully, I would say, how interconnected we are as members of a church with our leaders. It's uncomfortable to ask whether we could be part of a system and maybe we didn't realize it. It's uncomfortable to ask whether we have been part of a system that perpetuates the unsettling of families. Have we? If we desire a leader of good character, one who will relate to us and to our community in a healthy way, we, are also, we also need to be a community of good character. Um, last week in the message from John 21, um, if you ha- d- didn't hear it last week, um, it's on the website, you can find it. Um, please do go listen to it. Last week in the message on John 21, I had asked, where have we been resisting the spirit in heeding Jesus' call to love his people? If I could connect that question about feeding lambs, tending sheep, loving sheep, uh, feeding sheep, sorry. If I could connect last week's message to today's reflection, I would ask you, could our resistance to follow Jesus' call to love and serve be perpetuating unhealth in our church? Could it be upsetting our church family could our disobedience, whether intentional or not, sometimes we don't realize what we're doing, be hindering the witness of our church? Could the character of our church, could the witness of the gospel to the world be marred by our character? Um, I often share this quote from uh, a missiologist, theologian that I admire. Uh, his name is, uh, well, it's Leslie Newbegin. He often asks, and I've, I know I've said this before, but it's appropriate. He asks, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? And he continues, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, how people interpret, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. It goes beyond what we assent to in our creed. It, it, it continues into our character and work. There is a call in this text. As Paul is writing Titus to appoint leaders, there's a call implicit there that the church live out our creed to practice our faith so that the world will know that the power of God is at work here is it at work here? I know it is. I've seen glimpses. You all experience it. You, you come from a week of small victories, knowing that God is still at work. But I also know that there's a lot more work to be done. There's more sanctification to go on. The pastoral search committee has been urging us every time they come up that this is a, not a task just for the committee. It's something that all of us are doing together. It's not a task that we can even give to the committee to do for us. We can't, we can't outsource our character development on someone else. We all have our part to play. We have the work of confessing together our corporate disbelief, our corporate lack of action. To confess that in some ways we have let the Crete part of New York City the selfish and greedy ways of the world lead us to claim our individual rights at the expense of our corporate call to character. Sometimes we resist this reflection because it's hard to face up to being part of the problem. Because if you've talked to anyone in the last few years, it's, it's so easy to condemn everyone else. Everyone else is having a problem, but not me, right? It's easy to blame everyone else, to other them. We do it so often that when we realize it's on us, we can't bear to do it to ourselves. We think we'd be throwing ourselves out. So our natural response is to resist, but look at the text, we'll come back here. Look at verse 13. If you look at verse 13, when he, when Paul is appointing these, Paul is telling Titus to appoint these elder, um, elders who know the teachings. Notice that the rebuke is not to expel those who have been disobedient or lacking character. It's to restore. We may have taken in. The worldly ways but the rebuke is intended to restore us that we can be as a text says sound in faith it's a kindness to us that brings us to repentance it's the grace of god grace all is grace that is indeed the gospel that paul is so adamant if you look at all the things that he describes he he leans on teaching he's so adamant in guarding through the through these people of character all of these things, all these character traits, find their grounding in sound doctrine. This character, this, this character that conveys the truth of the gospel to the world is not, the character itself is not the goal. It's merely the result of sound doctrine. Because without the grace of God, without the doctrine that informs us, the demands of character that Paul is putting here, it's going to crush us. It's the love of God, the grace of God, and his promise to renew us, that he's doing the work in us. It's what transforms us. So church, our witness comes not from mustering up our goodness to see how good we can be, to make ourselves so attractive to the world. It comes from allowing the message of the gospel to transform us from the inside out. Character. Character is embodied teaching. It is the embodiment of sound doctrine that makes us fit for good work. Character is embodied teaching. It is the embodiment of sound doctrine that makes us fit for good work. And we bring to mind the full demonstration of this doctrine of God's love every Sunday right here. At this table, every week, if you are here and you know Christ, we remember what he's done for us at this table. We remember the very first lines that we hear every week on the night he was betrayed. He was betrayed. At this table, we remember that even when we were his enemies, when we betray him, when we don't listen to him, when we resist the call to character, to love, to tend, to feed the sheep when we were lacking any qualities that would make us pleasing to God and fit for good work as our passage ends today. While we were his enemies, Jesus died for us so that the brokenness that we are swimming in, that is caused by sin, would lose its hold on us. But the story continues that Jesus rose from the dead, to show us that this perfect character that we long for in our leaders that we long for in ourselves that the whole world longs for it's not just a it 's not just wishful thinking it is a reality as real as Christ has risen from the dead and defeated death jesus 's resurrection from the death confirms to us that it is certain as we abide in him and he abides in us as we go through this table we remember We literally take him into ourselves at this table on the night that he was betrayed. Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins Do this also in remembrance of me, for as often as we eat this, as we gather at this table, as we drink this cup, we together as a church proclaim the Lord's death and his return.